1: From MPB Think Radio, this is Creature Comforts. It's the show all about your animals and the animals around you. I'm Kevin Farrell, here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, and Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. Our guest today is aquarium biologist, Ted Olag. We're swimming with the fishes on today's show. How much do you really know about the fish at the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science? How do they collect the fish that they want, what fish are most popular, and how do they make the aquarium similar to natural environments? You can join the conversation this morning by giving us a call at 1-877-MPB-RING. It's 1-877-672-7464 or send us an email, animals at mpbonline.org. You're listening to Creature Comforts from MPB Think Radio. Welcome back. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, and Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. Our guest today, aquarium biologist at the museum, Ted Olack. So we are swimming with the fishes on today's show. Uh, How much do you really know about the fish at the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science? How does the museum collect the fish they want, and which fish are most popular? How do they make the aquariums similar to the natural environments? You can join the discussion this morning with your comments and questions. Our phone number is 1877 MPB ring. It's 18776727464 or you can send us an email. It's animals at mpbonline.org. Always like to remind you that you get two chances each week to hear creature comforts. Uh, you can uh, hear it th- uh, Thursday mornings at nine and it also repeats Saturday mornings at six. So good morning hope everyone is doing well this morning. Good morning good morning. Very well. Uh, Libby, we always like to let people know about uh, things going on at the museum.
2: Yes. The Goosebump exhibit is um, very popular, getting lots of folks in. And we have fun Fridays every Friday in June and July from 10 o'clock to 12 (laughs) o'clock. do activities that are related to the exhibit and been lots of fun so far what we've had snakes and bugs and bats and spiders recently tomorrow july the 8th is friday so from 10 to 12 we're going to be talking about coyotes Uh uh-huh carnivore in our midst and should you be afraid of Coyotes, how do you prepare if you've got coyotes in your neighborhood? There'll be demonstrations, investigations, crafts, all themed around the coyote. So um, I'm looking forward to it.
1: That's interesting. On Morning Edition this morning, there was a story uh, or an interview with a guy who'd written a book about uh, coyotes. So That's
2: what I heard. I was just telling Ted, <laughs> I heard something, and I wish I'd paid more
1: attention to what it was about coyotes. Okay. Yeah, but they did say that what you said, the, uh, that they uh, are sort of comfortable uh, living in a uh, uh, urban environment. So uh, it was an interesting interview and sounds like that would be a great uh, a great program. And that's tomorrow.
2: Yes. And I heard him mention something about the sound. And that's, to me, the coolest thing about having coyotes around. And of course, how you know that you have coyotes usually is because you hear them, not because you see them.
1: Well, the other thing he, he said, uh, that was our our natural national anthem. And so I imagined everybody at a baseball game going, oh, Yep, yep, you know. Oh, I love that, Kevin. That's
2: great. I think we ought to do that in the museum. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the coyote anthem.
1: Uh we'll get uh oh, oh Dr. Major, what about uh things in the pet world? Any interesting things uh, going on at the clinic?
3: You know, heat is very important right now. It's uh what, heat index of 105, 110 mm-hmm. today. Uh, we always emphasize uh, if you have outside dogs, make sure they've got plenty of adequate water and shade. Uh, and uh, the thing about cars, uh, please don't uh, leave your pet uh, unattended in the car. Uh, it can get quite hot. Some people say 150, 160 degrees in less than 15 minutes. So, mm-hmm. uh, it's very, very dangerous. And, of course, we've had some tragedies, I think, already this year with children. Same situation, so uh, be very careful. Very good.
1: Uh, we've got an early caller on the line, so let's say good morning to Timothy, who's called in from Louisiana today. Good morning, Timothy. Good morning. What good do you have morning. for us?
4: I was wondering if there
5: are any freshwater bryozoans in the south.
2: Yes, there are.
5: Because All right. I'm- what would be the best places to find them?
2: Oh my gosh! And oh, uh, Ted, I don't know if you see them when you go collecting, but I have seen them in lakes and kind of larger ponds. Uh-huh. So I'm trying to think of where would be the best place for you to look. Um, you know, you might do a Google search. Okay. For Brazilians in Mississippi, and then the other thing to do would be to call the museum. And ask around. I will bet you that Matt Wagner can answer that question because he's out collecting fish all the time. And that number is let's see, six zero one five seven six six thousand. And just ask him where he collects, because you're you're probably going to want it on public waters instead of a private pond.
5: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
2: Okay. Yeah. yeah. So um, I don't even what, believe
5: in invading other people's spaces, you know.
2: Yeah, well, what's your interest in those freshwater Bryzoans?
5: I'm just I, it's you know I used to live in the inner tidal and I miss bryozoans, so I thought you know there might be some up in this way I could just you know visit and say hello to. <laughs>
2: oh, that's a great idea. Yeah, and you might learn, I mean, might meet some they're, new friends. They're
5: the most interesting dang animal I think there is, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean they you know you find their fossil record even from the Ordovician, you know. Mm-hmm. So They've been here a long, long time.
4: Yeah,
2: and they're, they're such a weird-looking life form.
5: Yes, is yeah. that a plant or is that an
4: animal? Oh my God, it's an animal, <laughs> You Thousands know,
2: You're giving me a great idea for another show. We may have <laughs> to do all these weird things that do, but a lot of times people think they're plants.
0: Yeah. Uh-huh, yep,
4: yep. All right, will right. well, you have a groovy day and all keep right. up the good work? Thank you, MPB.
1: All right, Timothy, thanks for the call. <clears throat> All right, so those who don't know, what is a bryozoan? A
2: bryozoan, it's a colonial, um, they're really very small organisms, but they, they make a colony in a strange-looking ball. They can be as big as, you know, what I think of in my mind, I guess it's almost like a, um, one of those horse apple-looking things. Mm-hmm but it's you know it's it's in fresh water not in salt water but i think they are kind of associated with uh, uh sometimes with um coastal areas
1: okay uh, our guest today is uh aquarium biologist ted Olak. ted thanks for joining us hey, i
6: appreciate you having me on uh if you want to tell us a little bit about your background sure thing i started uh at the university of southern mississippi i did a bachelor's in uh, recreation administration and then I just finished up my master's at Johns Hopkins doing museum studies.
1: All right. A USM man. That's that's good from my point of view there. I absolutely, went, went there a probably doubt. many, many years before <laughs> you were there. Uh, but uh, uh, what about um, interest in um, you know, uh, biology and and um, aquariums, those sorts of things? Some, well, a I, lifelong interest?
6: Absolutely. No, it started as collecting bugs in the backyard. Then it moved on to working at veterinary clinics in high school for extra money. Um, I've always... D- Scuba dove, I've I've dived since about ninth grade. Mm -hmm. I'm a specialty diver, search and recovery, so I've always wanted to work in animals and be underwater, and that's how it led me here. How long have you been working at the
1: museum? Roughly about two and a half years. And if you could uh, give us an idea of of some of the the job responsibilities, some of the things you do in, in connection with the aquarium,
6: and is it aquariums or aquaria? (laughs) either one is acceptable to me but um it's it's a fun thing because it's never the same thing every day you know you know you start your day by cleaning glass you always have to check your uh, sump so your backup water you always have to check pressure your part plumber Um, you also you know you're testing water quality so you're doing you know the science-based activities Um, then you're collecting the fish you know and that's gonna happen pretty much almost every week during the summer and the Springs so it's something different every day. It's always exciting, especially with living animals. You never know what's going to happen. And I guess for folks that are listening that have aquariums at their house,
1: uh, the, the sort of the things that they deal with, you do, but maybe just on a larger scale.
6: Absolutely. Absolutely. It's very similar, uh, whether it's freshwater or saltwater, our filtration, you know, is just basically on a commercial scale. So, um, like for like, example, for our filtration, um, some people use little uh, pads to filter their water in a home aquarium. Well, we do the same thing for our holding tanks, but on our huge tanks, we use similar filters that you would have on a pool. It's filled with sand. So basically, it's just the bigger, batter version of what you have at home. <laughs>
1: uh, if you have any questions <laughs> for our guest this morning, Ted Olike, you can give us a call if you're interested about the, the aquariums at the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Or I think if you have a, a home aquarium question, Ted might be able to help you out. Dr. Major's here, ready to take some pet questions. And we always like to hear about wildlife that you see when you're out and about in Mississippi. The number to call is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven. 672 you can send us an email to animals at mpbonline.org you know my couple of visits to the museum i always do like to go through the aquariums i think it's really a great uh, part of the museum and there really is an extensive uh, give us an idea how many aquariums uh how many different types of, of fish and things are at the museum well how many fish would be tough
6: <laughs> we have about 15 aquariums um So we even have a specialty cube tank that changes with the special exhibits. Uh, My coworker, John Hardy, takes control of that. And uh, so every exhibit we have, he themes that one. The rest of them are all based on fish in Mississippi and the different types of water in Mississippi. We're blessed with a very heavy diversity of inland freshwater fish. So that's the great thing about it. You're not going to see the same fish in every tank, absolutely
1: we need to take a quick break when we get back we're going to continue creature comforts on mpb think radio visiting today with uh, the aquarium biologist at the mississippi museum of natural science ted Olack, also dr major here and libby hartfield as well we'll be back with more after this short break For MPB comes from the University of Mississippi School of Education, offering hybrid doctorates, K-12 leadership, higher education, and math education. Combine online and face-to-face courses to graduate in three years. More information at education.olemiss.edu. What if you could see the world in a totally new way, but only for 90 minutes? Would it be worth it?
2: I can answer that question. It would be worth seeing it for one minute.
0: How one woman got a glimpse of what she'd been missing her whole life. Later on all things considered from NPR news today at four on MPB think radio this is an MPB think radio podcast to hear previous shows visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB public radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand
1: Welcome back. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. I'm Kevin Farrell, here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, and Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. We're visiting today with the aquarium biologist at the museum, Ted Olak. If you have a question, you can call us this morning. Our phone number is 1-877-MPB-RING. It's 1-877-672-7464. Send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. If you have a question about the the aquariums at the museum or maybe your home aquarium, if you have a pet question for Dr. Major or wildlife question or observation, we've got some open phone lines and we would love to hear from you this morning. Uh, So, uh, Ted, uh, you know, uh, I think you kind of mentioned this, but again, one of the things I like about the aquariums at the museum is it's, they're like little ecosystems to where, you know, Mm. each tank is sort of a different uh, ecosystem from a a part of Mississippi. So tell us a little bit about that.
6: Absolutely. So each aquarium is based on a different watershed in Mississippi. So let's take the Pearl River for example, one of our largest aquariums. Um, we're going to collect fish from the Pearl River. We're going to get structure like driftwood or something like that from the Pearl River. We're going to find shells. We might even use a little bit of gravel. We're going to do everything we can to try to represent that particular area. And, so, and, and, that's, and each aquarium is like that. So to better start our ability, we're going to travel to the location where those fish live and bring them back. Do you have kind of a thumbnail
1: for how many different types of of fish you want
6: in each aquarium? Absolutely. We um we have a census record that we base on every single aquarium and that has pretty much a, a strong suggestion of how many in, of particular species we want in there. Um and that's based on how big the aquarium is, um how they're going to get along together and things of that nature.
1: But again, I guess you want the exhibit to mirror wh- uh, what might be in nature. So if there's a particular abundance of a type of fish, you would probably want more of them in that tank. Absolutely. The ratio is important. Yeah. Um,
2: I was going to say, but then I know you start getting into those little things like, okay, what is more aggressive? Yeah. We can talk <laughs> about
6: aggressive yeah. members. You, yes. can, you
2: can look at the book. It'll <laughs> yeah. tell
6: you what you should put in there. But at the end of the day, it's how they're going to act with each other. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like sunfish, for example, they're wonderful animals. They're beautiful. And there's a, t- a lot of different varieties. Um, you can't just have a few in there. They're going to fight each other. So you have to be able to make sure that you have a correct social structure in there so they don't you know, start things. But also, I guess uh, other fishes, I mean, maybe one fish might be food for the other, that kind of thing? Absolutely. And uh, we try to, you know, we work around that with feeding schedules as well as target feeding, uh, like the big alligator gar and the long nose and the spotted and the Pearl River again. Um, they're predator fish you know their their natural prey items are swimming along right next to them (laughs) so we use uh, target feeding poles to make sure that they get their food every single week as well as putting in live feeder fish for them so they they kind of get adapted and trained essentially to this is where my my food is and so it's a lot easier to take food off a pole than having to hunt a fish so they (laughs) you know so they're okay with it Uh, What about uh, uh, population
1: control? Obviously, fish reproduce. Do you, I mean, I guess that might be maybe good in some ways, but again, you've got to make sure that uh, you don't get too many fish in, in one aquarium.
6: Well, as far as spawning in an aquarium, um, there's a lot of things you have to do to make it the appropriate type of uh, area for a fish to spawn in captivity. Um, they really like to do it out of captivity. Um, so we don't have to worry too much about, you know, an explosion of population inside the aquarium. So it's just making sure and maintaining what we have in there.
1: Right. So this, uh, but as you mentioned earlier, this also though, is something though, Every day you're monitoring a number of things just to make sure that uh, the things Absolutely. are balanced out and, and, and okay in each, in each tank.
6: Absolutely. Everything from uh, salinity to temperature to dissolved oxygen to just watching their general swim patterns to make sure there's no irregular gilling or breathing or if any type of jerky movements are flashing, which is essentially itching for fish. So anything like that's what we're looking for every day.
1: All right, so you mentioned one of the the watersheds. Uh, t- give us uh, some examples of, of some of the other uh, things uh, demonstrated in the other tanks.
6: Sure. Well, just going off my tanks, one of mine is the uh, Blackwater Stream. And uh, Blackwater Stream is much more tannic. It's much more acidic. Um, it's uh, south Mississippi, about the Hattiesburg area. Um, a unique fish in there is the Blue Nose Shiner. And uh, they like acidic water. Uh, m- most fish around this area like a more basic water or more more... Uh, you know, neutral waters or seven on the pH scale. Um, So we want to make sure that when we come back with those fish, that our aquarium is that same pH level as well as that same tannic level because they're going to be uncomfortable and potentially not do well in the aquarium if we don't. Um, Another one is an oxbow tank. Um, That's actually geared to be a lower oxygen tank. Um, An oxbow, if anybody doesn't know what that is, it's when a river uh, takes a bend and they fill up an area and then that river disconnects from that. Um, so, that's going to be its own uh, body of water now. Um, so, there's going to be just certain types of sunfish and gar and smaller baby bass and basically things that could get washed in there. And I want, you know, so that's going to be like my baby fish tank. It'll be a little lower oxygen, but there's still going to be plants in there and uh, a bunch of sunfish and smaller animal items.
1: Uh, that's an interesting thing, too. So, um, do you also put then uh, non fish? You mentioned, you know, driftwood and that sort of thing, but also plants go in there as well?
6: Absolutely. We do a mixture of live and uh, artificial plants to try to recreate that type of area. Um, Even the the very aquarium itself is made of gnite and it's textured to type, to look like the type of background and colored with, you know, obviously non-toxic pet safe material. Um, And so we can use artificial and natural materials to be able to do it. So we can buy a lot of the gravels and things of that nature, but to make it really look authentic, we like to get certain things while we're out collecting. Um, And just to give us maybe an idea of a scale, um, what would, say, a
1: typical maybe home aquarium be in terms of size versus the aquariums at the museum?
6: Uh, Home aquariums, you know, people can have everything from a betta fish just in a five-gallon aquarium to I've seen some really beautiful reef setups in people's homes that are 175, 250 uh, gallons of water. So really, it's just about... You know how what you're willing to get into, but then in the aquariums we have, you know, over 10,000 gallons. Uh,
1: if you have a question this morning, uh, we're visiting with uh, aquarium biologist Ted Olek about uh, the fish at the Museum of uh, Natural Science. Uh, and like I said, if you are a home uh, have a home aquarium and have a question, uh, you can give us a call. Dr. Major's here, ready to take some pet questions. And again, we'd like to hear about what you're seeing when you go out and about in the great state of Mississippi. So the phones are open. Come on, folks. Give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring Our phone number is one 672 7464 You can send us an email. It's animals at mpbonline.org. So you mentioned that uh, you want you try to collect all the fish uh, you know, in, in the areas where they come from to put them in the, in the proper tank. So give us an idea about uh, how, you, how you collect the fish.
6: That's actually one of the most fun parts is collecting fish. And um, there's so many different types of methods to do it. From everything from dip netting on the shore to using an electroshocking backpack uh, to using large seine nets with multiple people to going on a, out on a boat to catch. It's, it's so much fun. Um, but to start a trip like that, I mean, it starts well before we you know, get in the car. Um, I'm upstairs with research, you know, collaborating our information to try to find the best spots to go to in that area. Uh, We want to make sure that we're getting from a population that's not in danger. You know, we want to make sure that we're getting specimens that, you know, are in an area that there's plenty of other ones that can reproduce. Um, So we'll get all that information set, and then we'll plan the date. Uh, We'll get our oxygen bottles ready. We want to make sure when we put them in the collection bags that they're comfortable on the way back to us. Or if it's a large animal, we might even need an aquarium to go or a holding tank or a live uh, live well is what we call it to be able to put in the back of the truck to bring it back. Um, so it usually takes at least two people or more on a good collecting trip because it's not a one-man job. It's, you know, <laughs> you're trudging through creeks and streams up current to get these fish, and a lot of times they're not too happy to be plucked out, <laughs> so, you know, um, but the, the, the fish safety is number one priority, their health and, and as well as uh, you know, their comfort. We don't want to stress them out. Stress is a big thing with fish, so we want to keep them as calm and comfortable as possible.
1: All right. So you mentioned a couple of ways there. If you, maybe we can elaborate that a, a dip net, I guess, is as you say, just maybe on on a shoreline with a net,
6: kind of just dipping in. Absolutely. There. Just it's got a long handle and it's got a deep net.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you mentioned uh, what was it, electro electro shocking and backpack
6: shocking. Yeah. yeah um, both use similar methods, but backpack shocking it's it's uh, a unit similar to a backpack, except it's much larger and heavier, and it contains large batteries. And we use a pole with um, a ground wire and, of course, waders um, because it's is involved. And it sends out a uh, current into the water just enough to stun a fish, which we can actually adjust to uh, the parameters we need it to be, of course, for ultimate safety. And um, that'll just stun them temporarily. We can scoop them up and put them in a collection bag. And then a, is it same net? Correct, yeah, a seine net. Um, it uses two poles, roughly between 7 and 8 feet uh, tall, with a long net in between it with a tight gauge and uh, it takes two people, and we'll usually, um, anywhere from 14 to 25 or different, you know, custom lengths, and we'll go through the, the creeks and the streams, that, and uh, we'll we will end up on the shore, and everything that's in front of us will be in the net. Okay, so is that maybe like two people or two boats? So how, does, how uh, does Two it, people. So okay. we'll actually, um, we'll, wet wading is what we'll call that. We'll actually just go out into the water and walk up the stream.
1: And then I guess maybe what are some of the uh, variables about the fish that determine
6: which method you're going to use? So backpack shocking, for example, um, that's going to be much tighter, smaller uh, streams. Uh, it's much more easier to co- collect fish in rocker, rocky areas or when there's a lot of structure where you, there, you can use a net. It would just get caught left and right. Um, so larger expanses of water, so like rivers, where there isn't a lot of structure or anything to get hung up. And a seine net's perfect because you can cover a large area um, at a time. Um, And then, of course, large bodies of water where swimming and standing with a net wouldn't be very uh, helpful. Um, A boat would be electroshocking and a boat would be more appropriate. So it just depends on what we're going after, the size we're going after, uh, the area in in which we are doing our work, what's there. And so we we put all that into account to select our our collecting methods.
1: And so are you looking for a good cross-section of age of fish, size of fish, that sort of thing?
6: Well depending on the census record, uh we we try to usually go after anything that's the appropriate size for the aquarium. So Oxbow's a smaller aquarium, so I'm gonna keep smaller, more adolescent fish in there. Uh Pearl River's a big aquarium. We want nice big impressive fish, so we'll go over older, larger fish. But uh, again we just we want a ba- it's a balance. It's a balancing act of how many fish, how large of the fish. Um As far as age, it's really hard to determine by eyes the age of fish obviously if it looks full grown it's going to be an adult it's going to be a little older um, if it's an adolescent smaller it's going to be younger but um you know we're just we're not aiming towards anything specific as we want a three year old catfish right you know we just we're looking for a pounder and we'll go for like if we need a baby catfish, we'll get a baby if we need a forty pounder we're looking for a forty pounder
1: and if I remember correctly, there are some non fish creatures in some of the aquarium.
6: Absolutely. Uh, so we have uh, fish, reptiles, and amphibians. So everything from three-toed amphiumas to turtles, and as well as alligators and snakes. Okay. Uh,
1: again, we've got some open phone lines. Now, I'm surprised we're not getting a little bit more traction out of this, because to me, this is very interesting. And if you've ever been to the museum, it really is an impressive uh, uh, aquarium collection that they have there. But we've got some open phone lines, so give us a call. The number is one eight seven mpb ring Our phone number is one eight seven seven 672 7464 dr major is here ready to take some pet questions as well so you said it. the you know obviously the the health of the fish uh, is important uh so when you get the uh fish to back to the museum uh, what is the procedure for kind of getting them used to their new environment
6: that's that's a very important part of it the acclimation process which is just getting them ready to actually go in the aquarium so when we collect our fish and bring them back the first thing we do is not put them in the aquarium. Um, Because they're wild caught fish, um, there's a plethora of things that could be wrong. Um, There could be parasites or some types of aquatic ick or anything of that nature. Um, So we're gonna put them um, out of our collections in quarantine tanks. Um, just, you know, nice, safe environments. They're usually very enclosed to reduce stress. We'll put nets over them. Um, if they have lights, we will usually turn the lights off just to basically try to calm them down as much as possible. And we'll keep them in quarantine from anywhere from two weeks to 30 days. Um, and when they're in quarantine, we'll make sure that we start treating for as if they have any of these ailments, uh, just in case, because it's much easier to treat a fish on a smaller scale such as that than in a large aquarium.
1: Uh, Let's get a call in before our next break, and so we say good morning to Barbara in Purvis. Hello, Barbara.
5: Hey, good morning. Go ahead. Uh, I don't know if this might be off topic. It's not really fish, but I have a question about alligator uh, snapping turtles. I have a pond with a bunch of turtles, and there's one turtle that eats upside down with its tail sticking out, and it, it looks like a little alligator, and it was there last year, and this year it's bigger but there's only one and i'm wondering if uh... you can tell me about them and if there's maybe would be more than one or if it can breed with the other turtles and why it eats upside down
6: well as far as the eating upside down um, i can't explain that (laughs) Uh, normally turtles do eat upright um... so but as far as if it's an alligator snapping turtle or a common snapping turtle there's different characteristics to look at Um, but as far as crossbreeding with uh, different the species of turtles, that's not very common. Uh, okay. So it, more than likely, no. Uh, there's, it's quite possible that there's more than one uh, when they lay. And after they're born, uh, they do tend to migrate a little bit to find their own little patch of water. So it's possible that there might be more than one snapping turtle in there. Um, common snapping turtles don't get that much bigger than, uh, river cooters or ready or sliders. They get a little bit bigger, but, um, nothing threatening by any means is, uh, are you worried because it's a swimming hole or is it a fishing pond? Okay, sorry, we
1: lost Barbara there. Uh, so, Barbara, if you if you want to give us a call back to follow up, uh, we'll we'll take your call again. Right now, though, we need to take a quick break. Looks like we do have some callers coming in as well. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We're talking today with the aquarium biologist at the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, Ted Olack. Also, Doctor Major here, ready to take some pet questions. Uh, and so, give us a call at one eight seven seven MPB Ring. It's one eight seven seven. Back with more creature comforts after this.
6: two centuries ago, the first American president took office.
0: And next year, the 45th will take office. Follow history in the making. Right here on this station. Listen every day. Weekdays at 4 on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Dr. Michelle Owens, host of Southern Remedy for Women, here to
1: warn you about an upcoming epidemic of license plate envy. Yes, it's coming after you see someone driving around with a new MPB car tag. It's the latest way you can support Mississippi Public Broadcasting continue the mission of educating, informing, and entertaining Mississippians. This epidemic is easily remedied by visiting mpbonline.org slash car tag to pre-order yours today. This is Scott Barretta, host of Highway 61. Each week on the show, we explore a different aspect of the blues tradition. Join me every Saturday night at 10 p.m. and Sunday at 6 p.m. here on MPB.
3: This long is old, honey.
4: You know that 61 Highway. I was recently diagnosed with invasive ductal carcinoma.
3: Those of you who've been listening to the news are probably totally confused about breast cancer and breast cancer screening.
2: What choices exist to detect breast cancer? Is there a right way to fight
5: it? The option that was presented to me by my surgeon was lumpectomy.
2: Learn more in an MPB Southern Remedy documentary special, A Plan to Survive, July 14th at 7 on MPB-TV.
1: Welcome back. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. And our guest today, aquarium biologist at the museum, Ted Olack. We've been talking about the aquariums at the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Got some calls on the line, but Ted, I, I thought I heard you say aquatic ick. Is that... Is that the scientific name yeah it, well no
6: i'm sure there's a more scientific name for it, but in the general terms, an ick is a topical uh problem with fish that can be uh, both salt water and fresh water and um it's uh it's it has to do with their slime coat you want you know in being handled too much and getting exposed um, uh, to the elements and uh with it, Just like we can get a cold if our immune system goes down, they can get ick if they get, their immune system goes down.
1: All right, so if it has anything to do with slime, ick, icky, I can see that. So. <laughs> uh, we've got uh, Barbara back on the line. We were talking to her uh, from Purvis about an alligator snapping turtle. Uh, Barbara, uh, Ted was asking, uh, you know, what's the, what do you use the pond that you're seeing this turtle for?
5: Um, it's just a, it's about an acre pond on the farm, and nothing. It's just a pond. We don't swim in it. But uh, the dogs do sometimes, but it just has some ducks and a bunch of turtles and fish. But when I feed the ducks, I, I throw in floating catfish food, and all these turtles come up. One time I tried to count, and I was like, okay, there's at least 60, if not 100. And they all come up, and they come up like little army people out of the water, and they even come up to me and want this food. It's great. I love them. But there's one turtle that's different. And, and it comes up, and it's upside down, and its tail sticks out. It looks like an alligator's tail, but then you see the shell. And um, I was just wondering about it, because last year there was only one, and this year it's there again, and it's it's bigger. Yeah, I'm just curious about it.
6: Absolutely. I mean, um, soft-shell turtles can get quite large. Um, mm-hmm. You know, snapping turtles can get large. Alligator snapping turtles can get even bigger. Um, you'd be surprised with how big a rivercooter or a long-eared slider um, can get as well. So, okay. I mean, they, they're they're pretty impressive animals at uh, full grown.
5: Yeah, it's pretty neat looking. Absolutely. I almost I was tempted to pick him up by the the tip of his tail last night, but I I didn't know if he could turn around and bite me. I just want to look at it.
6: Well, it it would be a safe place, but I have to discourage it just because um, it, messing with that tail can injure them. Oh, okay. Yeah, so um, the best course of action would not pick it up because, uh, yeah, it it especially good. if it is a common snapping turtle, their necks uh-huh. have quite an impressive reach. <laughs> fact, so
2: that's one of the uh, ways that I know yeah. to tell them apart. The alligator snapping turtle can't get you from its tail, but the common
5: can.
1: Absolutely. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm.
5: Well, I won't touch it. I'll just I'll just tell people, look, there's a baby alligator. And, and,
1: <laughs> everybody. Hey, uh, Barbara, if, uh, if you have a way of taking a picture of it, if you could email it to us, we could get it to the folks at the museum, and they might help you uh, identify for sure what it is.
5: Yeah, Okay, I will do that. Thank you so much.
1: All right, thanks for the call. And again, the email address, if you'll send it to animals at mpbonline.org, we'll send it over to the folks at the museum, and they'd be glad to figure out what that is so you can uh, rest easy and know uh, what type of, uh, of critter you got there in your pond. Uh, let's continue on. Looks like we've got some more phone calls. So next we go to Reginald in Gulfport. Good morning. Go ahead.
7: Uh, good morning. I, I've heard that fish feel no pain, but why do they flop around?
6: Yes, yeah, uh, that's um. fish can feel. Uh, they they do respond to stimulus and a uh, stimulus, and they absolutely can feel. Um, that's just kind of an old wise tale people used to say. Uh, to feel better when they were cleaning fish.
7: <laughs> oh, so they can feel pain then?
6: Yes, sir. They can feel.
3: Okay, thank you.
6: All Absolutely. Right. Rich, good to hear from you in
1: Gulfport. Uh, let's continue on. Next, we're going to go to Scott in Natchez. Looks like a pet question for Dr. Major. Go ahead, Scott.
7: Yes. Uh, last week, my dog injured himself. He uh, was chasing somebody on a four wheeler. Okay. And he went around the corner of the house, and I didn't see. What happened, but when he came back, he was limping. So when I took him to the vet, they said that he had tore his ACL in his right hind leg. Yes. And, of course, they, now they have me trying to get a urine sample to see if he has some type of a disease that apparently attacks ligaments or something other in animals. And I was just wondering, is that a common thing for animals to tear ACL? I mean, I've tore mine twice and <laughs> it 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 managed to you know i'm still able to get around right with it but he is i mean completely lame in that right leg and so now to have him giving him a shot right you know twice a week and some pills every day and i'm just curious is that i never would have thought that an animal or dog would tear its acl by it's not all running too
3: fast. It's not uncommon in dogs that uh, are athletic, uh, especially dogs that let's say play frisbee, chase squirrels, jumping up and down in front of the tree. Uh, they're usually involved in some sort of activity. Uh, quite often, they will be running after something and stepping a hole, get off balance, and can tear that ligament just like just like we can. Uh, it can be surgically repaired. A lot of them will get better time, not knowing whether it's completely torn or not. Uh, You do want to try to use medication, which sounds like the vet is trying to help you with this uh, from the standpoint of both pain and uh, trying to help prevent arthritis. Now, most of the dogs that have a torn ACL will toe-touch or barely toe-touch for a week or two. Then they'll get better. And then, say, another month, three weeks to a month, they will start showing lameness again. So you have to consider whether surgery would be indicated, uh, Discuss with your vet. Or I do recommend restricting activity and giving medication to, for pain. So that's pretty yes. well how it, yeah, how it works out.
7: pretty pretty well restricting his own activity right now. But right,
3: but he doesn't need to be, even when he starts feeling better, he doesn't need to be chasing that four-wheeler again.
7: Yeah, I hope that he won't because okay. it's, uh, it's hard to prevent them from riding back and forth in front of our house. And mm-hmm. I understand. He's, he's getting more protective in his older age.
3: Well, best of luck to you, and uh, I would follow what uh, information or uh, advice your vet has given you on that. Take care. All right. Thank Scott, you. Thanks for the call.
1: Uh, next, we've got uh, John in Hernando. Good morning, John. Hey, good morning. Uh, question to any of you gentlemen? Uh, I live on a golf course up in North Mississippi, and we have four ducks that generally uh, stay around the ponds. They lay eggs in the water along the shore. They're wonderful. We
5: get them and cook them and eat them. <laughs> but I wonder why the ducks lay the eggs in the water.
3: Is well, that
1: typical duck
2: that behavior? That is a little unusual do they to have, me.
3: Do they have a nest at all? No. Okay, well. They're trouble ducks for some reason, and you're lucky that you don't have uh, a big flock of Canada geese there as well. Oh,
0: we do. We do yeah. have that.
3: Okay. okay. Well, anyway, I cannot explain why they lay their eggs in water, uh, not without a nest. Now, some do.
2: So uh, you're probably an unusual guy. I've not heard yeah. of other people that are collecting the duck <laughs> eggs and eating them. But the eggs, but,
3: are, eggs are quite good. They're very, very rich. they oh, absolutely.
5: They're, yeah. they're larger than a chicken egg, and they cook up just fine.
3: Right, and they're a little bit harder, too, I remember as a kid. A little, a
1: little harder. The membrane is tougher.
3: Right, as a, as a kid, uh, in Easter, we used to have uh, contests it's ages ago, obviously, with eggs. And uh, a duck egg or a guinea egg was always in favor because they could break everybody else's egg. <laughs> oh, <laughs> but anyway, that's great. All right, uh, John. Thanks for the call. I,
1: I think you thanks have, much, have stumped good work. St- stumped the panel on that one. So, if anybody uh, listening might have an idea why a duck would would lay an egg in the water, uh, you can give us a call. The phone number is one eight seven seven MPB ring. It's one eight seven seven. 672-7464. You can send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. We're visiting today uh, with an aquarium biologist from the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, Ted Olag. So, Ted, you mentioned there are both freshwater and saltwater tanks at the museum. Uh, do you make saltwater? How do you get the saltwater? I don't make salt
6: water. <laughs> 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 I, um, all the tanks I care for are freshwater tanks, okay. but uh, my lovely co-worker Karen Duroff, who's been on the show before, mm-hmm. um, she takes care of large-scale uh, saltwater aquariums. Um, so she, we actually have a holding tank up in the a museum in the upper levels where she mixes up pre-made saltwater to the correct salinity that she wants. And uh, that's important because the the Mississippi Sound has a specific salinity, so it's different than if you like in the Gulf area, than if you would go into any other type of salt water. Um, it just changes how how much salinity is in there, whether it's greater or less. So she wants it at a particular area, so she makes it to the particular area that she wants, and then she uh, we can feed it down through a series of pipes to her aquarium.
2: And it's really interesting looking, isn't it? It's a great. Looks like a great big bread machine kind of. It's mm-hmm. a big metal cylinder with a dasher in the bottom and she pours in her concentrations and it's not just salt right there are other chemicals you know other minerals and things that the fish would need in their water and she mixes it up and tests it and kind of cooks it up (laughs) yeah no heat involved though I don't think
6: no 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 heat involved just
2: mixes
1: it up yeah but, you know, I think that underscores, you know, next time you're at the museum, you know, appreciate all the work that goes into to making those aquariums something that folks uh, can enjoy when they visit the museum. Need to take one final break this hour. When we get back, we're going to wrap things up. We've been talking throughout the hour with aquarium biologist Ted Olak. Dr. Major's here, ready to take some pet questions and is always looking for wildlife questions and observations as well. The phone number to call is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven. Six seven two seven four six four send us an email. It's animals at mpbonline.org. We'll be back with more after this. So
5: 227 years ago, the first U.S. president took office. Next year, the 45th will. Follow History in the Making right here on this station.
0: Listen every day. Weekdays at 4 on MPB Think Radio. What if you could see the world in a totally new way, but only for 90 minutes? Would it be worth it?
2: I can answer that question. It would be worth seeing it for one minute.
0: How one woman got a glimpse of what she'd been missing her whole life. Later, on All Things Considered, from NPR News. Today at 4 on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.
1: Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. I'm Kevin Farrell, here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, and Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. We're visiting today with an aquarium biologist at the museum, Ted Olack. Ted, I don't think I asked, how many total aquariums are there at the museum? I believe 15. Okay.
6: Mm-hmm. 15 plus the special exhibit, now, so I guess that's the temporary 16.
1: And then you are in charge of how many? Five. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that thing, I guess I've noticed that it's a little dark in that part of the museum, and I guess that that's because the, the better for the fish?
6: Well, it's actually based on... Uh, the old school version, or the more traditional version of zoos and aquariums, aquarium halls have always traditionally been put in that dark hall to have that attractive kind of pull towards the light and seeing the movement in the animals. It kind of you know tunnel visions you. It distracts you from other things, or you know having the darkness that you don't get the distractions that way. You can really kind of immerse yourself in there. Um, we are kind of playing with the lights right now, so if you visit now, our uh, wonderful exhibit developer, uh, Rachel Smart, has kind of been using these moving gobos to uh, project a, a light onto the floor and make it look like water moving on the floor mm. and things with nature. So we're kind of tweaking that right now, trying to give it a fresh new look.
1: And you mentioned, you know, we talked a little bit about the, the size and the scale of these aquariums. Um, I imagine cleaning can be a a bit of a challenge.
6: It is a daily challenge. Um, The smaller ones, we use uh, poles with uh, the equivalent of a magic eraser at the end of it without any uh, chemicals in it, of course. Um, Our aquariums are made of acrylic, not glass, Um, so we have to clean them a little bit differently. Um, it makes it easier to repair them. They do still scratch, but with glass, once you scratch, you get a chip just like your windshield. You just either deal with it or you get a new one. Um, with acrylic, you can repair it to a certain extent. Um, so, But with the big tanks, we have to dive it at least once a week uh, to be able to get the algae on the inside because there's no way to be able to use a pole to get all the way down there. Um, we also siphon the gravel, um, which is essentially vacuuming. Um, we'll backwash the filters to try to get everything out. We'll stir them, um, replace the sand or whatever, the carbon media that we're using. Um, that's a little less often, but on a daily basis, we're doing water changes, um, cleaning algae um, and doing the front glass.
1: Uh, do you ever have to remove all of the fish from a tank to do some sort of so kind of like exhaustive cleaning?
6: We try our best not to. <laughs> we want to keep them in there because it's the least stressful on them. Um, so our, our goal is to maintain the, the healthiest water quality possible and the cleanest tank possible so that they can stay there happily as long as possible.
1: And you mentioned occasionally a, a human visitor for, I think, maybe on special occasions, feedings and that kind of thing, but also some maintenance. So I guess... After a while, the fish kind of are used to that and, and don't pay any attention.
6: Oh, absolutely. As you mentioned, we do get in there for feedings um, on Tuesdays and Fridays at 10 o'clock and okay. then on Sundays at 2. So you can actually come and watch us fish feed um, with, with the, a diver fish feed. Because sometimes it's a volunteer. If you have your open water certification, you can uh, actually volunteer at the museum. Um, and after you get cleared, you can come and uh, blow some bubbles with us and feed the fish. <laughs> but yeah, absolutely. They do recognize you, um, especially like. Um, the bigger tanks, the saltwater and the pearl are the ones that usually get dove. And, um, the, the saltwater fish are kind of just like puppies. They start begging (laughs) the, uh, the, 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 Let's see, the eel will come out and get up in your face and be asking for food. The uh, the stingray will get in your lap and start to, if you've ever had a lab, put, your, uh, put his head in your lap and just kind of push down. I mean, they do the same thing. Uh, they can be aggressive, but uh, they know when they see a guy in a big black suit with bubbles coming out, they know he means food. And now sometimes
2: you have to catch some of the turtles. The turtles get so friendly and they're oh absolutely back, the pearl
6: river river yeah. yes sir um that one is the one that will go after your earlobes if you don't feed them first <laughs> sometimes you just kind of have to hold them like a football but uh he'll hang out with me so he's he's a good little dude all right uh
1: mikey is on the line
6: from mobile good morning mikey
4: hey good morning i this is such a wonderful show thank you um i i have to be a vicarious diver um an accident um a, a long time ago um, prevented me from being able to do that, so I'm thrilled. <laughs> I'm just thrilled to get this information and enjoying it very much. Okay. But um, a question I have is uh, regarding when we were kids, one of the things that we did um, as a family, because it was a large family, was go camping on a part of the Escatawpa River, which I'm sure y'all are familiar with, um, and it was, it was a wonderful place with a little sandy beachy area and uh, River Bend, as you were speaking about earlier. Now, my question is, my father at that time uh, was in the, uh, the National Guard and borrowed some cots. For there were seven children, and he borrowed enough for ha- every to have everybody sleep on the cots and since we knew that there i mean we knew that there were snakes and things we weren't we were brought up to not be afraid of those sorts of things and uh, certainly we knew when we pulled up the stringer of fish that we had uh, you know plugged in by the bank of the river and there was a snake on it that there were snakes around now his daddy's rope trick which is what i'm going to call it he said okay now we're all going to sleep on these cots and not on the ground and he also put a large you know diameter rope around ringed everything, and he told us, this is to keep, because if a snake comes up, it will think that there's a bigger snake there. Now, was this just something that he was saying to us because it actually works, or was it because it kept seven kids from going off, wandering off into danger on their own?
6: (laughs) It almost sounds like a little bit of both. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, there's one... partial truth to that um, it's not because they think it's a bigger snake uh, when they're going through the dark um, snakes vision is based on okay. movement as um, you know they're very scent driven and they also have heat pits um, so they and of course they move around on their belly um, so when they encounter something and they bump it with their nose they're more likely to go left or right than over so you know, that's, that's yeah. more or less what's happening. Not really, oh no, this is a bigger snake. He might beat me up. <laughs> the, West, the Western version of that, it had to be a
3: horsehide rope. And mm-hmm. uh, they would put it around the, uh, wherever they were sleeping. A lot of times, I guess, on the ground. But uh, did it work? I don't know that I've ever heard of any snake that crawled over it and bit somebody, but, uh, <laughs> and it probably helped keep the kids in that area too. You're probably well, absolutely right.
4: We didn't get hurt, and
3: we had a wonderful time. That's great. <laughs> it worked. Right. So whether it's scientific works. or not, you know, it's.
1: <laughs> Thanks Thank for the call, Mikey. Good to hear from you, uh, Ted. We got about a minute left. I wonder if you maybe you could, uh, for again, for folks who have aquariums at home some tips maybe uh what what do you think the success uh, the t- the secret to success of a home aquarium in 1 minute
6: <laughs> oh gosh the secret oh um, i guess you know just commitment 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 um make sure you're always checking your water quality every single week um you know you uh, you know if you've got a smaller aquarium things can go wrong faster um be, be sure to do your water changes you know uh, don't skimp on your water quality testing um you know get the little strips be able to check salinity everything like that because if you have healthy water you're going to have healthy fish and then you know make sure that you don't put too many fish for the size you know don't pack it in it's it's tempting to try to get everything but make sure you have the appropriate animals in the appropriate enclosure
1: all right. Great. Very good. Uh, that's going to wrap us up for today. Just a to remind you, know, Barbara had called earlier and I mentioned uh, a, a picture. So if if ever you see something uh, that you can't identify, if you could snap a picture of it with your smartphone and send it to animals at mpbonline.org, we'll make sure the folks at the museum get it and we'll see if we can't help you identify what you're seeing out there. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting, Think Radio, and the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Funding is provided in part by the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science Foundation and contributions from listeners like you. If you need to hear today's show or a previous show, you can find it at mpbonline.org slash creaturecomforts. So for Libby Hartfield, Dr. Troy Major, and our guest Ted Oak, I'm Kevin Farrell. Stay tuned. Up next at 10, it's MPB's Season Past with Jay White and Sam Wells. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts. It's heard only on MPB Think Radio.